Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to episode 10 of Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is Sakib joined by Anand. Hey, guys. And yeah, big one today with Australian Open starting with less than uh, what, 24 hours. First is a big shout out and thank you to Edward Roger Vazelan who took uh, time out while playing the Brisbane event and answered our, our questions via email, uh, kind of putting us on the map. Uh, first interview, thanks, Edward, and all the best to you and Nestor as you guys prepare for the first slam of the year. So a lot to discuss and a lot to predict. Let's go. Uh, the Edward Roger Vaseline interview could be reached by our uh, website, tennisaccent.com, which also has a widget for all the podcast downloads. And we've started a new uh, blog post there where guest bloggers can contribute and keep everyone engaged. Uh, we have a question from uh, the listener's point of view. Knuckle, who I've mentioned before, has sent a question for you, Anand. Uh, he just wants your opinion on Elena Svitolina as a prospect, her potential uh, do you see her as a major winner at some point? I guess I'm the key uh, opinion leader on women's tennis here. So yeah, that's already <laughs> been uh, established. You are the WTA expert here. Nakul, I think you've uh, you've hit upon a very interesting player. Um, Elena Svitolina obviously is having some strong results right now. And uh, her breakthrough year was in 2015 when she made the quarterfinals of the French Open. Um, so Svitolina is, I, I think, uh, she is on the verge of a breakthrough, I think, this year. Um, uh, you know, she could have a Pliskova kind of year this year. Uh, she's had some really strong wins. Uh, she started off by beating Kuznetsova at a slam. And um, then she made the French Open, French Open quarterfinals. And guess who she lost to, Sakip? She lost to Ivanovic, the great Ivanovic. Right. And, uh, but she came back in 2016 and beat Ivanovic again to get back to the fourth round uh, at French Open. This, that's where she's had her strongest slam results so far. Um, but she's got a great all-round game, double-handed, uh, backhand, down the line is really strong. Um, I, I think she's due for a breakthrough. Um, let's, let's see if this is the tournament where that happens. Didn't she just beat uh, Kerber uh, in Brisbane? Yeah, actually, you know what? She's actually beat Kerber the last two times they've played. She's beat Serena Williams the last time they played. Oh, there you go, Knuckles. So, I mean, uh, you do pick your favorites. Yeah, you, you have a good eye. at the Olympics. I mean, that's a huge result. And uh, so, I have to say, uh, Knuckle, you, you picked a gem. Um, I think Svitolina has definitely got something going uh, for her. All right. So, uh, let's do a quick segue into the women's draw. Uh, and... Uh, do you see anyone outside of the top two uh, winning this title? I do. In uh, in on the on the women's side, there's there's a lot of players I think who are kind of under the radar, uh, but very capable players. Uh, the one that comes to my mind, Sakib, is Simona Halep. Um, she's been a bit of an enigma on the store. She's shown a level I think that is good enough to win a Slam, but somehow doesn't show up at you know at the biggest matches. I mean, she was actually um, in 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 a Slam final where she was playing hurt. And still very competitive. Uh, now the question is, did she did she lose her one big chance, or is she actually going to come back and you know have a Kerber kind of year this year? Uh, again, I, do you see her more along the lines of uh, Radwanska, where there's a lot of skill, but sometimes on a given day, uh, the big hitters can out hit her. I actually think she can stay with the big hitters. Uh, that's the one thing I saw with uh, Simona Halep because I think she's a superior mover on the court uh, to um, Radwanska. She's actually an offensive player, stays very close to the baseline. And so as good as Radwanska is from a skill standpoint, 
Simona Halep does have, I think, the game that that can say up and uh, even even a Serena Williams at a slam. Right, so just for my knowledge, who's closer to Hingis playing style wise? Is Redmanska or Halep? This is this is a tough question, I think, because um, strategically, Radwanska has always been seen the person that's close to Hingis. Uh, in my mind, um, I think from the court positioning and the way she controls the rally, I think it's Simona Halep. Okay, let's wish her the best because she's uh, taken one of the best uh, commentators and obviously one of the better coaches around Darren Cahill. So let's hope uh, they have a good result in Down Under. Uh, who else uh, sticks out in the women's draw? Is it Pliskova or Muguruza? Yeah, Muguruza is having a tough time. Uh, she actually complained about being fatigued, uh, and this is just the beginning of the season. So I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, that's that's not a good sign when when a player complains of fatigue in the very first slam. But um, Pliskova is definitely the one to watch. I think outside the top two, uh, she's the one I think that's going to create waves. Uh, big serve, as as I said last time, and and her game is. I mean, when she's on, I think she's uh, she's a right-handed uh, Petra Kvitova. Really, she's she's unbeatable. Uh, she's mm. she's very streaky. So Pliskova um, uh, is my pick outside the top two. Okay, so who's winning this title? Because I know you like to put me on the spot. So who's winning this title on the women's side? I think Angelique Kerber, even though she's had a couple of uh, losses early in the season, um, her baseline game is really strong. The level I saw from her at the U.S. Open uh, last year, um, I, I thought was phenomenal. Uh, her defense, and I, I actually went on to say that she she was playing defense like I, I would call it a female Rafa, and I know I know that's giving her very high praise, but I, I thought really she re- got it to another level that most of the other women on the tour could not match. And uh, so Kerber, for me, is the winner of the Australian Open this year. Okay, so does she beat Serena Williams or in the finals? Serena is interesting, and I have not had a read on her game right now. I mean, Serena is capable of anything. Uh, I, she could completely throw my prediction with Kerber out of the window and beat her uh, in the final. Uh, but at the same time, Sakib, the interesting match for Serena is right up front. She's playing Belinda Bencic in the first round, who, by the way... She uh, beat her, right, in Montreal? She beat her in Montreal, and uh, she had a bad, uh, I, I would say, almost a sophomore kind of slump. And uh, she's back on the tour after an injury, and she's playing well again. Yeah. She played the Hopman uh, yeah. Cup and played well there. Uh, Got so, mentored by the best. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think this is this is a tricky uh, banana peel kind of game for uh, uh, Selena Williams. Let's see how she does. Okay, so who do you see uh, flaming out on the women's side uh, in the first week? Or? I think I said this. Uh, I think it's Mogaluda. Uh, she's definitely not looking good right now. Uh, I, I think she's going to probably get upset uh, pretty early in the tournament. She's playing Erakovic, who's a tricky player. Uh, I can see her actually losing even in the first round. Okay, so there, there we have Anand has predicted a repeat on the women's side and uh, also picking his first upset of the week, which is a uh, reigning French Open champion, Garbine Muguruza. So before we go into breaking down the men's draw, Sakib, I wanted to take uh, the, the trip down memory lane, as we always do. Um, we're a bunch of oldies here, right? We're so. a bunch of oldies, but we got some gems in the, you know, we got to talk about those matches. They were classics. So what, what's your favorite match uh, or favorite matches even? Yeah, I think match is going to be hard, but there are more than a few moments uh, here. Uh, but the one that really stands out, besides, of course, a lot of Roger wins, uh, uh, my favorite match is uh, Andre Agassi versus Marat Safin, the 2004 semis. Oh, yeah. 
And believe it or not, this match was shown on Encore on ESPN2 in the afternoon. So I woke up for this match at 3 in the morning, and uh, that time I didn't have broadband uh, connection. So I sat in front of my desktop, mm-hmm. and I think it was a four-hour-odd match, and I just was there, planted, skiing, the score being updated. I remember that very well. I, too, was watching that tournament. Yeah, so I mean, just this more like, I wish we had radio then so uh, for live tennis. So yeah, Safin, I think, uh, played lights out because before that he had tough matches with uh, Blake, Martin, and Andy Roddick. And uh, Patrick McEnroe really didn't give him a chance because obviously I guess he was the man to beat in the heat of Australia. This is also before Federer had become Federer. So Safin was coming back after 2003, the injury, the wrist injury. And then this match was so clutch. He wins the first two sets, then drops the next two and then sees uh, the fifth set in 6-3. And then I watched the encore a few times later. The, the first two sets, I, I request everyone who hasn't watched this match go on YouTube. I think this is the template of the tennis we are seeing. These guys were like two heavyweights. There was not like movement like Federer and Djokovic and Nadal. They were just exchanging blows. They were hitting forehands and backhands. And it was just like, Agassi was the standard and this guy just kept out hitting him. And of course, Agassi wins the fourth set 6-1 and you don't think uh, Marat Safin has a chance. But then Safin, despite all his shortcomings, when he was dialed into these matches, he, he was as tough because I think his five-set record is pretty good. So this match really stands out. It does. And, you know, Sakib, it's funny. We didn't discuss this, but the match I was going to pick as my favorite was the match in the quarterfinals of 2004, which was where Safin defeated Andy Roddick. Now, you know, I'm a huge, huge Andy Roddick fan. I, too, was up early in the morning watching that match. And Safin was up in this match, uh, uh, two sets to one. And Roddick comes back and wins the fourth set tiebreak, uh, 7-0. And I'm so excited. I'm like, this is this is the tournament where Roddick's going to break through at the Australian Open, you know, beating a big, big, big time player. And Roddick was number one then. That's uh, but he, yeah. you know, that that for me was like following up. Safin was 79. Yeah, he's coming back after the injury. So yeah, I remember that match as well. And but unfortunately for for me as a Roddick fan, unfortunately for me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Safin did play lights out. I think he was a superior player in that first set. Uh, but my second favorite match happens to be 2007 when it was back again, Roddick and Safin uh, playing. Oh, the Jimmy Connors match, yeah, when uh, he became his coach, yeah. That's right. And and this is when he retooled his backhand, uh, if you remember, uh, down the line. And uh, Andy Roddick was, uh, this was, I think psychologically, it was a big match for him to win uh, yeah. for coming back at the Australian Open. Yeah, I do remember that match. I was shuttling uh, back and forth between Astoria, New York and Massachusetts because... Uh, I was uh, dating my wife back then. We were married. So came back home and then watched this match and had to go back to New York in a couple more days. Yeah, uh, I think this match, uh, Andy Roddick was really hitting his backhand well. Safin had played two five-setters before and uh, not making any excuses. But yeah, uh, Roddick really deserved that one. He came out This this was one of, I mean, now we have players playing each other 20, 30 times. But this was a, a heck of a rivalry. It's very interesting you say that before we talk about the main event. Don't you think between all the great matches, this rivalry didn't really live up because of Safin being inconsistent and injured? They only played seven times. They were huge personalities. They could have, they should have played some Grand Slam matches, at least semis, if not finals. It's a pity that they only, you know, took the court against each other seven times. This is one of those things that you it always... Is, it is very unfortunate. And I think a third guy had, had something to say about it, uh, which is Roger. Um, it is, but not... Roger had a lot to say with uh, Andy and uh, Leighton Hewitt, who were consistent. Marat Safin, again, you know, one of my favorite players. He was busy losing to, you know, 
Hidalgo and players you, you never heard of. They were like uh, Christoph Ligon, again, a Monte Carlo match, which is so painful. We can do a Safin podcast one day or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Safin, despite everything he's achieved, Hall of Fame career, um, slam winner. I, I still think, uh, for me, um, he, he's an underachiever. And uh, Andy Roddick, on the other hand, I think, overachieved. And so they, they both, I, I think, should have, in theory, played a lot more. Um I this one, I'll I'll put it on Safin. I mean, he's yeah, absolutely. Of... It is more on Marat because uh, he didn't make those later matches when they both were high ranked. That second match, uh, Sakib, which um, Andy Roddick won, at that point they had played something like seven or eight tie breaks in in their last three or four matches. I mean, it was that close. Yeah, and Roddick won, I think, most of those tie breaks. He, he won a few, so. and overall, I mean, he edged uh, Safin in their head to head. Okay. Um, but um, again, uh, I, I think that for uh, me, it was as a fan, those yeah. were the highlight matches. Okay, let's talk about this year's draw because I see some people already turning this podcast off because <laughs> we're talking Andy and Marath. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so what do you see when you look at the draw? Uh, what stands out in terms of uh, tough first round matches? So when I uh, look at the draw, I think the first round matches for most of the top players, they look pretty straightforward. Uh, uh, including Djokovic? Yeah, Djokovic Vardasco. I think I think Djokovic is going to win that in straights. Uh, All right, let's talk about that later then. Yeah, and so but the ones that kind of uh, stand out for me, there's a couple of uh, matches involving I'd say the junior players, uh, and I I mean the younger players in the tour. Uh, Riley Opelka won the 2015 Wimbledon uh, juniors, and now he's uh, playing David David uh, Gaffan. And, Gofan, yeah. <laughs> and that's going to be, a, I think, a tricky match for Gofan because uh, Opelka is 6 feet 11, um, did not get enough news, I think, for beating Taylor Fritz at, in that Wimbledon, but Taylor Fritz has been in the news since then. Uh, admittedly, uh, Fritz has adapted better to the senior yeah, tour. Plus, Opelka was injured as well, and Fritz had a, a quicker transition on the men's side. Right, but Opelka, I tell you, uh, has, I think, has a very powerful game. Uh, I see him as a better version of John Isner uh, coming into the tour. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. I saw a bit of Opelka last night, and I was impressed uh, seeing uh, the first strike tennis he plays. So, what else? Who, 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 you, who have you got? Uh, for matches, I, I think uh, Alexander Bublik, someone I've been following since the last fall, uh, made through the qualifying attempt for the first time in a major and is playing uh, Luka Pui. That match could be interesting given uh, Bublik's uh, somewhat unconventional uh, game plan. Do you think he has a shot? Uh, outside chance. I mean, uh, uh, didn't Pui withdraw from uh, Brisbane against, uh, I think, who was he playing? Dimitrov? Yeah, so let's see. I think Pui is the favorite, but this match could have some exciting uh, rallies and a close set and a half, at least. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking at uh, Dolgopovlov and uh, Chorich as another interesting match. Uh, Chorich is not living up to his potential, um, but and Dolgopovlov is, I think, a very wily veteran already on the story. And a great shot maker, yeah, a indeed. great shot maker, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if uh, Chorich can pull it off. Okay, and uh, another match on you know uh, on my list is uh, Gastão Elias from uh, Portugal taking on uh, local boy uh, Nick Kyrgios. If Kyrgios is healthy, he should have no problem whatsoever going through this match. But then if he's uh, somewhat compromised by the injury he suffered during Hopman Cup, uh, Elias is a, a very compact player who can make uh, life tough for Nick. Who do you see uh, losing early? Uh, any, any of the top players that you think might potentially lose, uh, even in the first round? Uh, first round, it, it, it's it's tough. I think uh, Lopez Fonini is one that stands out. Mofiz is another one that I think is a tricky one. He's playing uh, Jiri Vesely, and uh, Vesely actually beat Djokovic last year. Uh, so he's got a big win. on. Uh, and Mofiz has had a 
had a bit of a lull in the last couple of months. So he's vulnerable, I think. Agreed, because a lot of people expect Monfils is a guy who's going to slip and make room for someone in the top 10. So yeah, I'll be intrigued with that uh, with that result, how it goes. So let's talk about the big guys. Um, uh, I mean, and we'll start with Roger and Rafa. They're coming back uh, to, to the slam. And um, what do you see for them? Okay, Roger first then. Uh, I think Roger has some... Uh, uh, it, he has an ideal draw, let's put it this way. He's uh, playing against the two qualifiers, so back-to-back. That probably has happened for the third time in his illustrious career. You call it an ideal draw if he's playing Burdick in the third round and Nishikori fourth, Murray five? I mean, yeah, but I mean, look, it, it could have been Kyrgios in the third round and Djokovic in the fourth round. So I think it's still he would pick Burdick and Nishikori. Uh, remember last time when we did the podcast, I thought I'll take Raonic, but Nishikori is not a bad matchup. Uh, I don't expect Federer to beat Nishikori, but that'll be a good test where Sorry, he's at. Like, I have to stop you here, but I think you're not giving Burdick his due respect. Um, Burdick, I think, is the one who's probably going to beat Roger. He's been losing to him a lot uh, in their rivalry, um, but I think this is where he sees a chance. He comes back and, uh, and beats Roger. But Burdick himself has, hasn't been uh, lighting it up, right? Since he partnered Ivanisevic, results were supposed to go up. He did reach the semis in Doha. And uh, but I think the trajectory has been going down. Uh, let's take a quick moment because we haven't talked Thomas Burdick since we started doing this podcast. Uh, very compact player, solid player, seen somewhat as underachiever, you know, in this uh, era of Big Four. Uh, do you see Goran making any impact? Because Burdick's uh, weak point has been his serve, his inability to win cheap points on that serve. I think everybody agrees that Burdick has has a has a great game. Um, I mean, a slam worthy game. Uh, I think where Ivanisevic can make a difference is really help him play more on instinct. And this is where I think he's going to come in and uh, hopefully uh, help Burdick conquer some of the demons, especially with, with his toss and uh, serving, uh, club serving, I think, uh, especially against players like uh, Djokovic, who who just seem unbeatable when, when they're playing uh, guys like Burdick. It's, it's funny you use the word instinct because that's how I see Goran as well. Uh, the word strategy didn't really, you know, personify Ivanisevic in his playing days. So let's see if he can do some work uh, which is uh, worthy to resurrect Burdick's career and ranking. Uh, many people think it's a little too late, but uh, we'll keep an eye on Thomas and Goran's partnership. And uh, so let's go back to the big four. And so what about Rafa? How far do you see him going? Uh, I think Rafa has a mouth-watering uh, matchup against uh, Sasha Zverev uh, in the round of 32 if they both get there, which I think they sh- both should given by the draw. Uh, what appears in front of them. Uh, I see Rafa winning that match purely on experience. It will probably go five. And this is where I think Moya and Rafa will correct that record of winning a fifth set. But uh, if Milos Raonic and Rafa keep their date for the quarterfinals, I still see Raonic uh, sneaking that one out. Wow, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty bold. But actually, it's bold because in my mind, that match is not going to happen. I think Zverev is going to take out Rafa and he's going to go all the way to the semifinals. Um, so that you can just, uh, you know, in your world, <laughs> get him close to top 10. Yeah, well, it's that. And I, I think he, he was showing very strong form towards the end of the year. Uh, this is, I think, typically the kind of year where uh, players make that transition uh, from being 15, 20 to top 5 and 10. And Zverev, we've been talking off as a super talent. Um, and so I think it's time that he, he started putting together the results that, uh, you know, define his talent. I think he'll definitely be boasting a career which have those kind of moments, but I, I don't think he's ready yet to beat the likes of uh, 
Nadal and uh, Raonic in a in a back to back or maybe two out of three matches. So I still think Milos Raonic is uh, the most likely candidate to come out of that section and play uh, Novak Djokovic in the semifinals. Again, uh, we're jumping ahead, but uh, we are. And uh, by the way, I wanted to ask the one guy we we most people ignore and probably the most most dangerous guy out there is Wawrinka. Do you have any predictions on Wawrinka? Uh, the less we talk about him, the more he wins. So let's, yeah, let's, let's, you know, let him be. I the mean... mouth-watering <laughs> prospect of watching Wawrinka play Kyrgios. Okay, now that if match if happens and if both are firing on all cylinders, I still think Nick wins this match, maybe in straight or four sets. Because there's something about that matchup that Nick really troubles. Wawrinka maybe takes a time away, you know, plays this uh, big cut tennis, you know, doesn't give him uh, rhythm for long rallies. Of course, Stan is a man who has made a living on proving people like us wrong, or even the tennis pundit. So, I, I still see Nick Kyrgios, if he's healthy, uh, beating Stan. But then the health is a big if with Nick. So, we know that every Australian Open runs through Novak Djokovic. And so, he's starting off against Verdasco. And he's got, I would say, a relatively tough draw, uh, in my mind. And so, do you actually see this playing any different than Djokovic winning the whole thing? Yes, I think Djokovic uh, can still, you know, it's still on his racket. He can still lose this. And uh, Grigor Dimitrov may be the biggest challenge in his way uh, to reaching the second week because Dimitrov has been playing some uh, mind-blowing uh, tennis and uh, kind of got over his contemporaries. I have, I'm, you know, I have given up on Dimitrov even though he, he seems to show sparks of uh, the talent that, that we thought he was. Um, but he beat three top ten guys, uh, winning the Brisbane title. And uh, Raonic and Nishikori, I know you're not a big fan of either. They don't give away matches. They play tough. So, Grigor to beat them and win the title is, uh, so the, has to board well. When I look at the draw, the, the match I see Grigor actually struggling with um, is, even before Djokovic, he's going to be playing Gasquet, um, who actually has a 5-1 lead on him in their rivalry. And uh, let's make it 5-2 on Friday. I think Dimitrov <laughs> wins that match, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, Gasquet's happy they won Hopman Cup. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and uh, so th- this is, I think, the match I, I don't see happening. But but you're right. If, if Dimitrov plays Djokovic, um, it, it should make for some entertainment. Look, I mean, if Novak is on his game and is invincible, you know, beast mode best, n- nobody is uh, even, you know, coming close. But let's go back before the Boris Becker years. And Dimitrov was playing some good tennis under Roger Rashid. Yes, Roger Rashid. And they had some close matches. Dimitrov, I think, beat him in a match, I believe, in Madrid and then had that four-set semifinal uh, at Wimbledon. So if Grigor comes back with some clarity of game plan, he's covering the court well, executing his you know, shot selection, and confidence is a big thing for a guy like Dimitrov, I see him giving Novak Djokovic all he can handle. He he would, uh, except I, I always think of uh, the Australian Open as Djokovic's home field and this is why I think Djokovic is unbeatable. Um, but I mean, let's look, talk about the biggest challenger. I mean, who the, Andy Murray is clearly the biggest challenger. What, what's oh, your... he's not the favorite. <laughs> okay, so uh, maybe maybe you have a different tack on this. So tell 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 me what you think about Andy Murray's chances. Okay, if the match happens, right? Again, we may sound like a broken record. No, Andy is the number one player in the world, but a lot of times it's like the Serena Williams analogy. Some other girl could be number one, but if Serena plays her best, she's the best player in the game. But not to disrespect the ranking, because Andy earned the ranking the right way. So I think to win a slam, you have to beat the field. And even when the draw comes out, who has the most uh, difficult of matchups or whose form can 
have an off day. So Novak in the last six months, deservingly, after reaching that summit, has been a little off, even though he won the title in Doha. I think Andy still can go through this draw, no matter who you throw in front of him. And if Djokovic gets there, that's a different conversation. But I still see Novak can falter before the finals. And I still think Andy is a lock to be there on that Sunday. So that's why my favorite is Andy Murray. But if they play, we'll do another podcast before the finals and then we'll give Novak his due. He may very well win the seventh. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I just feel that Andy Murray has had some really bad history with Djokovic here at the Australian Open. Um, so your prediction, I think, is pretty bold. Uh, but having said that, uh, who do you see as the four semi-finalists? Uh, in my racket bracket for Tennis Channel, I mean, uh, the one I play with you and uh, some other friends, uh, I have uh, uh, Djokovic losing to Milos Raonic in the semi-finals, who will lose to Andy Murray in the finals. Oh, wow. Okay, so you got Milos actually going all the way. And I've got a couple of uh, surprises in my my draw. And I think it's a lot of it was uh, when I looked at the draw and saw how the matches would turn out. Like, for instance, I, I saw Kyrgios beating Wawrinka. Um, so what the way I see it is it's going to be Andy Murray. Uh, it's going to be Djokovic, of course, on the other side uh, in the final. Uh, but playing in the semifinals will be Zverev. And I think one of Kyrgios or Jack Sock. Well, you had to bring in Jack Sock. I had so. to bring him in. I think Jack Sock right. has got an easy draw playing on the side of Murphy's. I hope he one day listens to our podcast and retweets it because the kind of stock you're giving into Sock, Stock and Sock, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, he's going to have a sangha uh, to play before he gets there. But uh, I mean, I honestly see, you know, I don't want to always make jokes on Jack Sock. Jack Sock's really improving. I saw him at the French Open last year. He was playing uh, uh, Ramos Vinayos in a clay court battle. So the guy is improving, his backhand, which was a liability, is coming along, the movement is better, but I still don't see him because to win these things, Anand, you have to beat three of the top ten guys and I just don't see, uh, I don't think Sock can beat any of those guys if he, he it's, it's still a learning curve for him. I, I would agree, I mean, I, I don't, I definitely the, don't see him being three, beating three of the top ten, okay, but does, the, with the way the draw is playing out. Um, can I, Sock be, beat the number 17th guy right now, Roger Federer? He can't beat Roger Federer either, but he can beat Nick Kyrgios. He can beat the guys in front of him in this draw. And that's the way I'm seeing it. Okay. Fair enough. So, let's talk about the the challengers who are like in the mix for so long. Kei Shikori and Milos Raonic. How do you see this fortnight going for them? I have been thumbs down on both these players. I think they've been a disappointing generation. Uh, I would put Dimitrov in the mix with them. Um... Ramnich, uh, we've talked about him several times. Um, clearly, um, I think he shows a lot of discipline and he's he's actually uh, very impressive. Uh, keeps improving in his own way, right? He, he does keep improving, but uh, I, I just don't see these guys winning a slam in their careers. So, But don't you think this Open is a little more open with Roger coming back as a 17th guy, Nadal still trying to resurrect that uh, downward trajectory, Andy you know, being at the top and a lot of people think it's Novak's uh, reign to claim and Novak is you know not with Boris Becker not what he used to be so don't you think if you're a Milos Raonic who has a settled team you think this is your chance if I was Milos Raonic watching that match between Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic I probably should have booked my tickets to Bahamas or someplace because <laughs> I, I don't see how he could come and challenge any one of those two guys yeah but you know those guys play a very physical match it's uh, it's very different even how they both play against Roger so, given the respect, that, that match is a marathon from point one. It's not a 100-meter dash because they just keep testing each other. After 29 minutes, it's like five games. 
But I think uh, my that's point, not the I, match I, they will play against Raonic. No, I no? think my point is it's not o- it's not as open as we think. These two are clearly the two best players on the tour. So you take the two over the field. There's no one else even remotely coming close to win this title. It's between Andy and Novak and no one else. That's mm-hmm. how you see it. There is always the man we won't talk about. Uh, Stan the man. But outside these two, nobody else. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I kind of uh, think even though Nishikori is someone who I've vested a lot in as a fan since the Madrid 2014 when he was pretty much beating Rafa till that injury happened. But I think Milos might have something to say again this year because this is a guy come off-season, he's as good, you know, as prepared as anyone and he can ride that big serve. So, Sakib, we're both calling Novak versus Andy final Australian Open no, 2017. I'm, no, I'm calling uh, Andy versus Milos. Oh, that's right. You are yeah. calling Milos. So then, I I really have to say that you, you're putting yourself on the line here because it's not happening. Milos is not making it even to the fourth round. Look, Djokovic will probably make me eat my words in two weeks because he's capable of that. But I just still, still think uh, you don't, even though as good as you are, like Novak Djokovic, the Becker void, the partnership, the turbulence they had. Now, even in the interview, Djokovic doesn't want to address what Becker has said. So, you know, it's not as good and as calm he's, you know, trying to show the game is there of course so to win a two-week tournament I, I, I don't know if he's fully back yet that, that's my only concern but again this is a guy who's like as good as anyone at this tournament so it could be very different in two weeks time uh, okay before we conclude I, I wanted to ask you this question before I forget and uh, uh, you know Roger is the ultimate crowd favorite and the most popular player and you know he's an army of fans like many of us but do you think uh, Tennis Australia is facing somewhat of a dilemma. He's coming in as low as 17. And right now they're putting him on the center court, deservingly because he brings in, you know, TV ratings and, you know, he has to be on the big show courts. But what kind of a balance will they try to manage? Because then there's people like Nishikori, Murray, Nick Kyrgios, the local guy. You think he gets all center court assignments? I think Roger deserves it as a past champion. Um, the reason his ranking is low is because of injury. Um, and I think it's very well known. And I don't see personally uh, how Tennis Australia would miss out on the opportunity to showcase Roger again uh, in what could be one of his final years on the tour. But then you've been going to the Open so many years, right? So you think if Roger, similar scenario occurred, you think the Louis Armstrong fans will go crazy if Roger gets to play there. So in in the end, Tennis does win if you put him out there. And say Margaret Court or Hisense. What, what about the Ash fans who play uh, pay hundreds of dollars? And no, he, he's, he's still. If he plays four matches, I only see him playing. You know, all matches on uh, Rod Laver. Maybe one match outside. That's how I see it because someone like uh, Nishikori uh, deserves to get his you know affairs on center court. Because again, another uh, thing I was reading somewhere, the guy who's playing uh, Murray or Nishikori, and he said he didn't even get a chance to practice on the center court again. The establishment. Uh, conversation we had so these guys who will be playing in front of a biggest audience the tournament directors don't even allow them practice time it's all about the rogers and Novaks and true but I'll, I'll i'll just say this the audience for me the highest paying audience in that tournament would be wanting to watch roger federer and this is what they're paying for in my mind and and the tournament's giving them what they want and they're not doing anything wrong because they also are respecting i think one of the greatest champions in history. No, of no, sport. It, it, it's totally fine. But if you say Akeni Shikori and you spend your career ranked 12 and 14 and now you're one of the top dogs. And uh, I know Nishikori is a very nice guy. He probably wouldn't even let this bother him. But I'm just saying the protocol has been 
you have to distribute the wealth. Even though Federer brings in all the ratings, you have to maybe give him a couple of matches, I think. I, and I'm thinking it's also good for fans. I, I know I'm kind of reiterating my point. There's Federer, there's Rafa too, I think, in the, in the same conversation. Um, and I, I think if what they do for Rafa, they do should, should do for Federer. And I think they should play both um, on centre court. Yeah, Rogers won this thing four times and Nadal's won this thing once. So I guess... Uh... I, I, I think it really comes down to their aura, their star status, what they represent for the sport um, and what they represent to the fan base. And these things, I think, are very important. Uh, as good as Nishikori is, and I uh, kudos to him for being a solid player on this tour, uh, he just doesn't approach, to me, the status um, of uh, Roger Federer. And the, the fans that are paying dollars to watch these guys play, um, you, you, I'll be hard-pressed uh, to find one fan who will say, I'd rather watch Nishikori there on center court than Roger Federer. Okay, I mean, I don't fully agree with you, but I totally see your point because I'm also, uh, I'm a little split, but I still think uh, they should play Roger maybe outside court, uh, on Margaret Court at least once. That's how I see it. And so on that note of disagreement, which we must have on our podcast, <laughs> um, I, I, we, I'd like to thank everyone again for listening in. Uh, do check out our website on tennisaccent.com. Uh, we have some interesting blog posts and also an interview uh, with uh, Edward Roger Vaseline. And um, we look forward to talking to you guys again in the coming week. Maybe sooner than that. Thanks for listening. Bye now. Bye. Hello, friends. Welcome to the second episode of the Tennis Podcast. As promised, uh, I'm back. Anand is still burning the midnight oil as his company is demanding him to work a lot of extra hours.